Well, a 50-year-old Wisconsin man was recently pulled over. Uh, there was a warrant out for his arrest, and so the officer was about to, to take him into custody when he drove off in his car, and he told the officer, there's no way you're putting those handcuffs on me until I eat at McDonald's. And so this man went to the closest McDonald's. The police officer, of course, followed him there, calling back up. And the man got out of his car, and he started heading into McDonald's. The police officers, of course, put him under arrest, took him into custody. Now, this guy had messed up already, but he just made his life a whole lot tougher. By resisting arrest, it turns out that he was going to face nearly seven years for his prior charges and also for the additional charges related to his resisting arrest. This guy messed up and all for a Big Mac. It's crazy to think about. At least he could have gone somewhere for steak or or something like that. What do we do in the face of our own sin and foolishness? What do we do with our own sin and foolishness? This guy just kept going. He didn't know when to stop. Do we do that? Do we say in the face of our sin and foolishness, you know what, I'm just going to keep going. Isn't there a better way? Well, this morning we're going to take a look at Jonah chapter 3 as we continue our journey through the book of Jonah. And we'll find that there is a better way to handle our own sin and our own foolishness. Uh, again, we'll be in Jonah chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, I want to invite you to, to take a Bible right there in front of you, a pew Bible. You can turn to page 822. Now, Jonah is likely the author of the book of Jonah. It contains a lot of autobiographical details. Um, a lot of folks have argued through the years that the book of Jonah has to be understood as has allegory. In other words, it can't be true. There's no way that a fish swallowed a guy and a guy lived in a fish for three days. That just didn't happen. But what folks don't understand is that the God who created the universe, oh, he can make a man live in a fish for three days. Come on. So, so we aren't forced with those who don't have confidence in the scriptures to suggest that this story isn't true. We have confidence that the Bible presents it as real history, historical narrative, and we believe that it's true. Jesus himself, of course, made it clear that he believed the same in Matthew chapter 12. Are these miracles? Absolutely. But the God of the universe, oh, he's good at miracles. No problems there. So let's get caught up. In Jonah chapter 1, we're going to, we, we saw that God called Jonah and he told Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach to the Ninevites. Well, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria was a longtime enemy of Israel, and Jonah wanted no part of giving the people of Nineveh an opportunity to turn to God. He wanted nothing to do with it. So instead of going to Nineveh, he went the opposite direction. He got on a ship, and he was headed to Timbuktu. He was getting away. Only problem is this great storm came, and the waters were raging, and the ship was about to sink, and it turns out... The crew came to the conclusion the reason they were facing this kind of horror was because Jonah had rebelled against God. And so Jonah was tossed into the ocean and the oceans calmed. Meanwhile, Jonah sinks down to the bottom of the sea. And we get a recording of of his feelings as he's sinking down. His feeling, the, 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 the sense of dying and drowning. And then suddenly a giant fish swallows Jonah. And Jonah hangs out there for a little weekend getaway for three days. And Jonah's heart begins to change as he sits in the belly of that fish. 
And he began to call out to God. And God in his great mercy, that's, that's the name of the game in this book. It highlights on an ongoing basis all throughout the book the mercy of God, the kindness of God. God in his great mercy brought that fish to vomit Jonah up onto dry land. And that's what happened at the end of chapter 2. Let's pick up there in chapter 3. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. When word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. Then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. What we see is that God calls Jonah to preach to the people of Nineveh again. You you see it right there in verses 1 and 2. Now Jonah has landed on dry land and we don't know how long it was between the time that this Fish vomited out Jonah and the time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah again. It's not clear how long that is, but what we do know is that the word of the Lord came to Jonah again, and that is God's mercy. He could have said, you know what, this dusty old disobedient prophet, I'm done with him. I'm done with him. But he doesn't. Oh, the word of the Lord comes to him again. Oh, we see the the mercy of God. And what does God tell Jonah? Well, it must have felt like deja vu because he tells Jonah almost exactly what he told him the first time that he called him to preach to Nineveh. He uses three verbs, three verbs of command. He says, get up, go, and preach. And he uses those same verbs here in chapter 3, verse 2, that he did in chapter 1, verse 2, as he calls Jonah to go to preach to the people of Nineveh. Now, it's sort of like playing a video game. You know when you die in a level, and then the video game starts you right back at the beginning of that level. That's what happened to, to Jonah. He found himself starting right back at the beginning of that level. He was going to have to get this right. Now, why did Jonah rebel the first time? Why did he say to God, you know what? I'm headed to Tarshish. There's no way I'm going to Nineveh. Why? Because he couldn't stand the people of Assyria. They were Israel's longtime enemy, and he, he did not want to see them have an opportunity to turn to God. He hated them. But what Jonah was about to discover is that God cared about the people of Nineveh, that God was a God of compassion and mercy. And he also was learning that you can't avoid God's will, that, that God would require this of him. Now, what do we see in verse 2? Jonah must preach exactly the message that God gives. So Jonah wouldn't have the opportunity to take any artistic license or do any editing of the message. Jonah was required to preach only what God gave him. Now, from a preacher's perspective, this makes sermon prep easy, and 
If the sermon flops, well, that's God's responsibility and not yours, Jonah. But the sermon didn't flop, as you might imagine. So Jonah should have been awful happy about that. God has commanded Jonah to preach to Nineveh a second time. How does Jonah respond? Well, look in verse 3. He didn't waste any time. That brother got moving, and this time not in the wrong direction. He was headed to Nineveh. After all, after you faced a, a storm that nearly brought your death, after you were thrown into the water and experienced the sensation of death and drowning, and after you spent a few days in a fish, well, maybe your attitude has changed, and Jonah's had. He was willing to obey God now. So Jonah heads to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh's about 500 miles northeast of, of Palestine. It was a large city, had a circumference of around 60 miles. In fact, if you look at the end of verse 3, it, it says that Nineveh was an extremely great city, and that can be translated that Nineveh was a great city to God. What we see is that God cared for the people of even Nineveh. He cared for for these people. They mattered to him. The people in this pagan city mattered to God. Oh, surely Jonah is learning about the mercy of God. Now, to go throughout the city, the scripture tells us, would would be a three days journey. So to travel and see all of Nineveh would, would take three days. On the first day of Jonah's time in Nineveh, he begins to cry out to the people, in 40 days, Nineveh is going to be overthrown. Nineveh is going to be demolished. So God's judgment is proclaimed in 40 days. Now, this is important because why doesn't God just say, this is the end. Today, you're going down. Why does he even send a prophet? Instead, he says, it's 40 days from now that you're going to experience the judgment of God. What's that? It's the mercy of God. It's God's mercy that that he's giving some time, perhaps an opportunity to repent, perhaps an opportunity to avoid the judgment of God. Forty days points to God's incredible mercy. Why 40 days? There's a lot of symbolism in the Old Testament connected to the number 40. Consider the time of Noah and the great wickedness that had spread over amongst all the people. And God called Noah and said, get in an ark because there's going to be a flood and this flood is going to destroy and wipe out everything on the earth. And Noah and his family got in that boat and how long did it rain? It rained 40 days because the evil of the earth was going to be purged. You'll remember that the people of Israel were rescued from the nation of Egypt. And there was a a generation of people there who had rebelled against God, who had not trusted God. And God said, you'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation has died out before you can go into the promised land. And so, in 40 days, Nineveh would face the judgment of God. Well, this is the message that God gave Jonah to deliver. How did the people of Nineveh respond? Well, We see that the people of Nineveh, as you look at verse 5 and following, the people of Nineveh believed God. They didn't reject the message of this foreign prophet, as you might expect. Instead, they, they believed his message. In fact, the people responded before Jonah ever had the opportunity to travel all across the city. Day one, and the people are responding. It's as if the people are, are repenting and changing even before he's finished his sermon. 
Now, verse 5 is, is a sort of summary of, of all that happens. We see the details in the, in the following verses, but in verse 5, we see that a fast was called. Now, a fast was a way to recognize that there were needs that were more important than physical needs. So a, a, a person would fast from, from food. And it was a way to recognize that they needed something beyond just food. They needed spiritual help. And so that's what a fast represented. Not only did they fast, but they donned the clothing. There was a symbol of grief and mourning. They put on sackcloth, which was usually camel's hair or goat's hair. Often it was black. They, they exchanged their comfortable clothing, the normal clothing that they wore, for this animal's hair. This mourning over their sin wasn't just among a handful of Ninevites. You know, there's a few folk who hear this and, and they go, hey, I'm going to believe you, Jonah. They're kind of a remnant, you might say. It's not like that at all. But this response, this repentance, well, it was widespread. It was a movement among the people. The scriptures say from the greatest to the least, from the aristocracy to the peasants. The message that Jonah delivered had fallen on receptive hearts. They were responding. Now, word got back to the king about, about what was happening with the people. How did the king respond to this prophet from a foreign land? Did he say, I've never heard of this guy. No foreigner's going to come here to Nineveh, to the mighty empire of Assyria, and tell us how to live? Bring that fellow before me. I'll take care of him. Not at all. Not at all. He heard the message, and he took off his royal robes. He got off the throne. He put on sackcloth, and instead of sitting on the throne, he's sitting in ashes. Ashes were another way to to grieve, and to mourn over sin. Now, some commentators have argued, like the whale, I'm sorry, the big fish, not the whale, it doesn't say whale, it says big fish swallowing Jonah, that the king of Nineveh repenting over this Jew named Jonas, what? Uh, Named Jonah? Who is this? There's no way that a foreign king would, would repent. There's no way that this people would repent. And so commentators have argued this can't be real, this can't be true. But in reality, we know that God is in the miracle-working business. He can change the heart of a pagan king. Now, it may well be that God had used circumstances to prepare the heart of the king or to prepare the heart of the people. For example, in the writings of the Assyrians, there was a great fear of solar eclipses. Uh, they, they saw these as an omen, as a dread of a future prediction of, uh, of, of, of terror. And one writer's, uh, Assyrian writer said this, When an eclipse comes, it means the king will be deposed and killed. Another writer said, when a solar eclipse comes, the king will die. Rain from heaven will flood the land. There will be famine. And so there was a sense of fear among the Assyrians at the event of an eclipse. Interestingly, there was a total solar eclipse on June 15th, 763 BC. And this would have been within the time frame of Jonah's ministry. Now, did an eclipse cause the Assyrians to respond as they did, we don't know. But what we can say is whether it was foreign invaders or or other types of things that might scare the heart of the king or scare the heart of the people, God had prepared the hearts of these people and they were ready to repent. And they did. Not only did the king humble himself, but he required humble repentance of all the people. We see not only of the people, but even the animals weren't allowed to to eat or drink. They were to be a part of the fast. Why? The king wants it to be clear. He's serious. And this is not just fasting from food, which would be more typical. This is fasting from food and water. Obviously, this isn't a a long-term fast. 
But it's a brief period of time to focus on getting things right with God. He calls them to fast even from water. He wants the people to understand this is serious. So instead of eating and drinking, the people were to be wearing these garments of grief. Sitting in ashes and calling out to God earnestly in prayer. Folks, there might be a word for us here. There might be a word for us in regards to our nation and our country, the situation that we're in. Maybe there needs to be more of this and a little less of this. Maybe a lot more prayer and a lot less spewing all of the crazy thoughts that, we, that might come to us in this moment or that moment on, on social media. Maybe something would be different in our nation. What you see is these people were taking the word seriously and they were calling out to God. It wasn't a game. It was life and death. Not only should it be time of mourning and intense prayer, but the king says the people must repent of their sin. They must turn from their wickedness and they must turn from their violence. You see, when we truly get right with God, it's not a game. And the king recognized that. It's not a game. We don't go, well, you know what? I'm going to follow God and you know, I'm going to do this and this and this and this. I don't care. God's word says it's not okay, but I'll do it. I'll do what I want. That's not, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is that the people are saying, you know what? We're leaving that behind. We're done with that. We're, we're turning away from that. We're going to live the life that God has called us to live. And so the king said, Perhaps God will turn. Perhaps he will relent. Perhaps he will not bring judgment upon our land. Now, they didn't know for sure that God wouldn't. But that's what the king was hoping. Now, here we might have the question, does God change his mind? Is God fickle? You know, like one minute he says this and the next minute he says that. It's not that at all. First Samuel fifteen twenty nine reminds us, the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who, who changes his mind. So God doesn't change his mind. It's that in God's sovereignty, he has ordained that judgment can be avoided in the face of genuine repentance. And so the king is hoping to find the mercy and the compassion of the Lord. And we'll see that's exactly what he finds. The king and the nobles of Nineveh had acknowledged who the ruler really was. Now remember, this is hard for a king to do because a king rules and all the people have to answer to him. And suddenly he's saying to all the people, hey, I'm not the biggest and baddest there is. There's one who's greater. There's one who's more mighty. You see the humility that's there. So often our our pride and our arrogance keep us from turning to God. So often our pride keeps us from saying, you know what, I was wrong. I shouldn't do that. Oh, I don't want people to think this or that of me. i got to maintain who I am. I mean, couldn't you hear the king saying this? There's no way the people may do all that, but there's no way I'm getting off the throne. There's no way these royal robes are coming off. Oh, friend, pride will always keep you from God. It will always keep you from him. You want the floodgates of mercy closed. Then walk in your arrogance. Walk in your pride. Be a little bit better than the other folk. And be a little bit better, truth be known, than God himself. Oh, the king humbled himself. And all the people humbled themselves. 
And it was a beautiful picture of genuine repentance. So what does this passage teach us? Genuine repentance opens the way for the mercy of God. Genuine repentance opens the way for the mercy of God. Now you'll probably recognize the story that I'm about to share, but it beautifully illustrates this truth. It had been a long time. This son, this boy, this man's youngest son, had been gone for what seemed to him like forever. This boy had demanded his part of the inheritance. He had said to his father while his father was still alive, give me my part of the inheritance, which would have been a third of the family's estate. And the father agreed and he gave his son his inheritance. And then the young man, he left. He left just like that, money in hand. And he took off and he went to foreign lands and he began to live a wild life. Whatever he wanted, it seems he he did. He was chasing pleasure. It seems he spared no expense in his pursuit. That was until the young man ran flat out of money. And that happened about the same time that a famine came in the land. And he found himself with nothing. The young man was starving. And he looked at pigs and the slop that they were eating. And he wished that he could eat even that. Hitting the bottom, this young man realized that he ought to just return home, that he ought to go to his father and say to his father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. Can I at least be your servant? And so the young man, he began to walk back home. Oh, his daddy had longed to see his youngest return home. Every day he must have looked up a thousand times, wishing that he would see his boy coming in the distance. Oh, and finally that day came. His boy came home. His boy came home and he said to his dad, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. Let me be a servant. Do you know what the dad did? He sat him down and he said to him, look at all of the bad decisions you've made. You did this and you did that and you did this. That's not what the father did at all. No, he told him, you've squandered our family's wealth. How dare you bring your face back here? No, that's not it either. What did he do? He threw a party. He brought out nice clothes and a, and a ring and all sorts of things. They, they prepared a, a grand feast. And the father rejoiced that his boy was home. And you know what Jesus taught? That's a picture of what we're talking about here in Jonah. That's a picture of what happens when a sinner comes to God, turns away from sin, And runs to God. When you turn from your sin, you're going to run into the open arms of God. You're not going to run to Him. And He's not going to be standing there like this. Sit down, son. We're going to talk. No, if you turn from your sin and you call out to Him, you're running into the open arms of God. What a beautiful picture of the mercy and the compassion of God. And friends, we're all sinners. Every single one of us, we desperately need the open arms of God. Oh, it was a party. It was a grand day. How does this passage guide us in our lives? Well, we need to recognize that a child of God cannot continue in disobedience to God without facing the discipline of God. A child of God cannot continue in disobedience 
to God without facing the discipline of God. You see, Jonah found out you can't outrun God. As a follower of God, Jonah didn't get to rebel against God and God say, okay. No, God loved Jonah too much to leave him in his rebellion. He went after Jonah. And friend, he'll come after you too if you belong to him. If you've wandered away, if you've ran away, I want you to know he's after you. If your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you're his child, he will not leave you alone. You matter to him. Jonas found this out. He he realized it. He recognized it. I can remember as a boy, we would go somewhere together as a family and maybe I'd start acting up and, and being ornery. And my dad would say to me, son, you remind me when we get home to whip you. And I hated those words. I hated them. So now the rest of the trip, whatever it was, even if it was something fun, I'm sitting there under the weight of, great, I'm going to get a busting when I get home. Now, I would, I would think to myself, do you think maybe when we get home, if I don't mention it, he'll forget about it. I'll try to straighten up and everything will be good. Then I would think, man, that's risky. That's risky because if I don't tell him and he remembers and he says, you know what? I told you to tell me and you didn't tell me. So now you're going to be in double trouble. I could just see the difficulty. So I would, I would usually not gamble on that. And I would say to him, hey, dad, I remember you said you're going to bust me. But hey, I was good. I and he said to me, son, I told you I was going to do it. And you're getting a whipping. And what my dad said, you could count on it, it would happen. And what I recognize now, didn't feel like it at the time, is that the discipline of my dad was my dad's love. It was his love. And you see, God disciplines his children, not because he doesn't care, but because he cares deeply. He disciplines us. He doesn't leave us alone. You see, to leave us alone and to to throw his hands up and to say, just live however you want to live. That's not love. Love. And God loves his children. Well, love brings discipline. Jonah knew it. Jonah had experienced it. And it seems the people of Nineveh were, were coming to terms with this truth as well. Next, God gives second chances to one who is broken over sin. God gives second chances to one who's broken over sin. Friends, this is good news. I need second chances. Third and fourth and fifth, and you do too. Do do you need God's mercy this morning? Then cry out to him in repentance. Repentance means that you turn from your sin. You say to him, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do what you tell me to do. Cry out to him. And when you call out to him with a heart that longs to repent and obey, he meets you right there. He meets you right in the midst of your mess, just like he did for Jonah. Yes, God gives second chances when we repent. Next, God uses our hardships and the consequences of our sin to change us. He uses our hardships. He uses the consequences of our sins to change us. God used Jonah's experiences to change him. This time, when God called Jonah, Jonah... He was moving, this time in the right direction. He wasn't going to defy God. God had used those difficult experiences to shape his heart. Now, we're going to see in the next chapter that he still had some heart shaping that needed to be done, much like you and me. We, we never get there until we get to heaven. We always need to, to be changed. But, but God uses those hard experiences to change us. 
haven't some of your scars shaped you the most? You know, the things you can look back into in your past and go, you know what, I wish I'd never done that. Hasn't God used some of those things to really change you? You see, that's what the Scripture teaches. God uses all things for for good. Even, Even the bad things in the lives of His children, God uses for good. Next, repentance is required to know God. Repentance is required to know God. The people of Nineveh had believed God, and it was obvious. How was it obvious? Man, they were calling out to him. They were turning from their sin. They were pleading with God for mercy. Now, the Bible teaches that every person alive is estranged from God, is separated from God. The reason that we're estranged from him or separated from him is because of our sin. God is completely pure, and we're not. And a God who's completely pure can't just say, you know what, even though you're impure, come hang out with me. No, to do so would be to compromise who he is, his very nature. So how do we get into a right relationship with God? We repent. We turn away from our sin and we put our faith in Jesus. And that's how we can be in a relationship with God. You see, the Lord sent his son to die on a cross to take the punishment for our sins upon himself. Jesus was buried, he came back to life, and when we put our faith in him and say to God, I believe in Jesus, that he died, that he was raised again, and I want to follow him, the Bible tells us that God saves us, that he rescues us, but repentance is required. You can't say, hey, Jesus, I want to follow, I I believe in you, I want to follow you, and then in reality, you never meant that. You're going to live life however you want. You don't care what God says. You can say the words to that prayer, but if it's not real in your heart, It doesn't change anything. And the way that you can tell if the words are real is if there's repentance. Is there a sense in my life where I'm changing, where I'm trying to become, by God's good grace, the kind of man that he wants me to be, the kind of lady that he wants me to be? Repentance is required to know God, to have a relationship with him. Francis Thompson was a 19th 19th century English poet. His dad had wanted him to go into medicine and, and he didn't want to, and he and his dad had a falling out of sorts, and he took off, and he lived a crazy wild life, and eventually he returned to the Lord, and he came to the Lord, and he wrote a poem called The Hound of Heaven, and it's about how God chased him down like a hound nipping, like a hound chasing after prey. And you know what? In reality, God stays after us. He chases after us. Is he on your trail this morning? Is he nipping at your heels, calling you to change, to repent, to get back on track? Why not turn to him and find life? Why keep running? Today, you can can change. Today, you can get back on the right track. That's the good news. When you desire to repent, his arms are open wide. So we've seen that repentance is required to know God. There's a province in China that that offers forgiveness of minor traffic violations if the person who committed the violation will post about their traffic violation on social media, sort of an apology, you might say, and if they get 20 likes, then they're free from paying the fine. The police department will take a screenshot of this social media post. They'll repost it on their official accounts, and the goal is to try to minimize traffic violations Now, the question is this, how? 
How can you find forgiveness? How can you find rescue from your rebellion? If you live in this Chinese province, you can post this on social media, but what about you and me? There's only one way. You must turn to God. You must turn to him. You must turn away from your sin. And when you do, you'll find mercy. Genuine repentance opens up the floodgates of the mercy of God. So today, if you're a believer, I ask you, in what area of your life are you going your own way? Have you said to the Lord, hey, I'm going to follow you, but in this area, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to hold on to my bitterness, God. I'm going to hold on to my critical spirit. After all, they shouldn't have done this. They shouldn't have said this. God, I'm going to hold on to this sin, to that sin. God, I know how you say I ought to treat people, but I'm going to treat them however I want to. God, I know your word tells me to love, but I'll do what I please. In what area of your life are you saying to God, I'll do it my way this morning? God is saying to you, won't you repent? Won't you turn away from that sin, from this sin, from from just kind of living your life apart from God? And won't you get back on track? This morning, when we stand and sing, would you pray to God? Would you ask him to give you the grace to repent? And when you do, you're going to find his marvelous mercy, his wonderful, sweet mercy. And still there are many here today who've never turned to Christ Folks who have never truly become a believer. Maybe you've done religious things, been baptized, went through catechism or, or something of the sorts, came forward at the end of a service, but there's never been a real change in your life. The Bible says that there has to be a time in your life when you call out to him and you say to him, please forgive me, I'm putting my life in your hands. And that's accompanied by repentance. If that's never happened in your life, then friend, today, The invitation before you is to do what the Ninevites did, the people of Nineveh. What did they do? They heard the word of God and they fell on their knees. This morning, God is calling you. Won't you come and believe in him? Won't you come and turn to him? Won't you come and find his mercy? Join me in prayer.